Hey guys, welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where it's our mission to help you find and follow Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new collection of sermons that will go through the book of Revelation. And it's our hope that uh, you will be inspired and encouraged by the truth of God's word today. So here's Pastor Paul, and let's get right into the message. Well, good morning, City Baptist Church, and uh, thank you for being with us today and for being on the chat. It's been so great to see so many of you on there and uh, reaching out to each other. And I'm thankful today to be able to share the Word of God with you in just a moment. I just wanted to mention, if it is your first time with us today here at City Baptist, thank you so much for joining with us. I hope that you're ready to hear from the Lord today. Uh, Church, I wanted to just let you guys know something new that we started just this week uh, in the chat Uh, Right now, they're going to put a link in the chat right now for a set of sermon notes. You might have already seen it kind of circulating through throughout the morning, but we're going to start providing a fillable PDF for you to download on maybe another device. You can uh, touch the fields to be able to fill them in as you go and then save those notes for the future. So I hope that'll be a, a helpful tool for you moving forward. If you have your Bibles with me today, let's turn to Revelation chapter number two. And I'm going to read today's text uh, just as we get started this morning, and we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll get into the message today. Thank you so much for being with us. I hope that uh, you're ready to hear from God. I know I am. I've been thinking about it all week preaching uh, this morning from uh, the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and I'm going to read to you uh, verses 1 through verse 7. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hath patience, for my name's sake hath labored, and hath not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer this morning. Father, thank you for the worship that we've already had together today. We thank you for how you've Um, already spoken to our hearts through those uh, powerful songs. We pray, Lord, that as we now open your word, that we would be very quick to hear this morning, that we'd be very quick to listen to what it is that you have for us today, that we would apply it to our lives and then see ourselves transformed by the power of your word. I pray that you would speak to us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as you guys know, last week we started an in-depth study of the book of Revelation and uh, a book for many people that is very... uh, Uh, confusing for some, Uh, for others it's concerning to them, and for others it may even sound a little bit crazy uh, that uh, that with some of the things that we see in the book. But as we looked at in last week's message, the book of Revelation is not something to be feared. Get that in your head right away. It is not something uh, to be feared. It is something uh, that we can trust, and it is something that God desires for us to know and fully understand. He made that very clear in the first verse of Revelation, chapter 1 and verse number 1, where he said, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, why did he give it unto him? To show unto his servants things which must uh, come shortly to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. The word revelation itself literally means the uncovering um, or the unveiling. And for us, what we're looking at here is the unveiling of God's plan 
for the future of this planet that we are on right here. We also saw last week that there is a great blessing to those who read the word of God, who hear this book in particular, and then those who do it. We also saw, I'm giving you a quick review, by the way, uh, we also saw that the book is divided into three parts. Revelation chapter one, verse number 19 gives us that uh, division there where he says, write the things, he's speaking to John, the apostle who wrote it, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. I want to just talk through that real quickly. The things that he had seen, that is the vision of the glorified Christ. That's what we saw in chapter number one of the passage there. The things that he had seen, that's the vision of the glorified Christ. The second one that we saw is the things that are. That is the state of uh, and the condition of the churches at that time. And honestly, the church going forward from that time. That's what we're going to be studying over the next uh, few weeks. The other thing that he mentioned here is that the things that would be thereafter. That is the uh, consummation of human history, the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course, the end of the world as we know it. That's chapters 4 through 22. And we're going to be covering all of these different sections But today, what we're doing is we're moving right into section number two, which is the things that are. Now, in this context, of course, this is talking about the seven churches of Asia that Jesus mentioned. And I've got a map here for you so you can kind of see where those churches were laid out. In fact, if you look at it directly, you can see the Isle of Patmos right there down at the very bottom. And you can see just across the bay, about 40 miles across there, was the first city of Ephesus that we're going to be talking about today. And so these are the seven churches here that Jesus mentioned, seven churches that he's going to speak uh, directly to. And I want you to understand that these are real churches. These are not figments of anyone's imagination uh, or things that God created. These are real churches, actual congregations. In fact, some of them were planted by the Apostle Paul, uh, by Timothy, uh, by uh, John, even himself later on. And, And what I want us to notice is that before God brings judgment to the world to come, the, the, the future events of judgment, God is actually here going to bring judgment to the church. Jesus, the one who founded the church, is the one who is going to give each of these seven churches kind of an x-ray or an MRI or a CAT scan or choose your scan. He's going to give an inside look as to what is actually happening within each church, and he's going to reveal. Here's what's going to happen. He's going to reveal the true condition of each church. Now, here's what we need to understand. Yes, these are written to specific churches. We understand that completely. However, The application is intended to go to not only those seven churches. By the way, there was more than seven churches in Asia Minor. We believe there's about 11 churches in that that time. But these are pictures, of course, of different kinds of churches. And they also speak to the heart of the individual as well. So these are not just things that we step back and say, all right, you know, it doesn't really matter to me. Uh, He didn't mention City Baptist Church of Vancouver here. No, these uh, issues or these problems and these good things that he's going to mention here in these seven churches are uh, representative of the millions of churches that were planted all across this globe from that point going forward. And the things that we're going to be studying in these churches are symptomatic. They are symptomatic of the local church, which we, of course, know the local church or how a local church is, is something that flows out of the heart of the individual. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over this, uh, this time together. The point is this. What we're going to study here, the the, the aspects of these churches are for personal application. They are for the application to our church as well. See, Jesus Christ expects us to search our hearts. 
Jesus expects us to take note of what he is saying and specifically take note of these messages that are given to the church. This is for us, the things that are. Remember he said that, the things which are, it is for us today in 2021 right here in Vancouver. Now the first church that he addressed is the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, look at verse number one again. He said, unto the angel, that means messenger of the church of Ephesus, right? These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So right at the outset, he reminds us about what took place in chapter one, where John had this vision and he, and he heard a voice speak to him and he turned around and there was the glorified Christ standing in the middle of these seven, uh, of these seven golden candlesticks. And in his hand, it says that he was holding uh, seven stars. Later on, he described what those were. The stars were the messengers, uh, sometimes called the angels or the messengers to the church. We understand that to be the leadership of the church. We know that uh, each church does not have a uh, an angel that's in control of it. We know that Christ is the head of the church, and then he has his uh, the, the leadership and those that are uh, put into leadership over the church. Now, uh, that's what he's talking about here. So he says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. So this is to the leadership of the church of Ephesus. He says, I want them to hear this, and I want them to know what I have to say. Now, that right there helps us to understand the seriousness of being in leadership within a local church. It shows us right there that God cares very uh, dearly. He did not just address it to the church as a whole. He addressed it to the leadership specifically, the ones that are going to give an account, of course. And we've talked about that before, given an account for the local church. It is a position that is uh, given. It is a a calling that is given. But it is also something that the Lord can remove and take away. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But Let's look at this church of Ephesus now just for a moment. Now, in our study of the book of Acts, and if you want to go back, you can go back and, and re-listen to those or re-watch those again. We talked about this extensively in Acts chapter 19 through verse number 21. But unless you memorize the facts, which I really, uh, it's hard, all of the facts that we cover, all, I know it's difficult to remember everything. I want to give us all a quick reminder of what took place there in Ephesus. Well, Ephesus was a city uh, that was a, a very powerful city. It was a wealthy city. It was known for its trade. Uh, it, it, of course, had the Temple of Diana, as you can see here in this image. It was an amazing, amazing place, well-known, of course. It was a city that went through a great transition from being a port city, which then, due to environmental reasons, believe it or not, they had to switch to more of a trade-focused uh, city, and, and they did it very well. Of course, we know that the Temple of Diana brought many visitors and many guests. It was a one, uh, one of the seven wonders of the world. People traveled from all over, and a lot of people there made money by selling, uh, by selling um, uh, um, images of the, um, I'm sorry, the slide moved and I got all confused, by selling images of the Temple of Diana and selling images of, of, of Diana herself. We also know the city had a large amphitheater there. It was, uh, it was a pagan city, of course, we know that. And we also remember ha- what happened when Paul went there to plant a church. Remember, he, ha- he faced some opposition almost right away. He stayed there for several years. There was the seven sons of Sceva. Remember those guys? Man, dirtbags. Those guys just caused so many problems for him. And then there was another guy who, uh, when he realized that the sales of his silver images of the Temple of Diana and of Diana were going downhill, he started a riot where they carried uh, Paul and other Others of the church there carried them into that great amphitheater that could hold 26,000 people, and and they caused a riot. And of course, uh, Alexander came down there, and he's able to calm the crowd. But then Paul had to leave after that, and it really was an uh, an interesting place. But even despite all the chaos, a good, solid church.
church was established there. And now, here we are, now here we are, 35 or 40 years later, 35 or 40 years after Paul was there, the planting, Timothy was the pastor for a while, John was there, and we see a church that is still going, still busy serving the Lord, and Jesus takes some notes about this church, and that is what he is reflecting to us today, and that's what we're going to talk about. So point number one today, you might have already wrote it down. Uh, Write down, first of all, let's look at the good. Let's look at the good for just a moment. Look at verse number two of Revelation chapter two. Jesus speaking said, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake hath labored and hast not fainted. Man, how amazing would it be to hear these words of encouragement and approval from Jesus? Notice there at the beginning of the verse, he says, I know That word, those two words right there means to have full and complete knowledge about the situation. In other words, Jesus knows everything that there is to know about this church. He knows everything there is to know about the intricacies, even about, as we'll see in a moment, the heart of the people that are there. What I'm trying to say is that this was not a guess from God. God was not up there and just sort of looking like, man, you know what? I think I know what you guys are like. No, no. He knew exactly what they were like. He knew the truth and he commends them. He He encourages them in five different areas. I want you to look at these real briefly with me. First of all, we see that the church served and sacrificed. Jesus commended them for their service and for their sacrifice. This church was known by their good works. See there in the verse, I know thy works and uh, thy labor. Their outward expressions of their faith to the city of Ephesus was something that was tangible, that was visible. I think they probably had uh, multiple service times. I'm sure they had different locations, maybe. I'm sure they had uh, many opportunities for their church family to share Christ and edify and encourage the believers that were there. And then it says that they labored. Now, the Greek definition of that word, labor, uh, means to labor to the point of weariness. It's the idea of sweat, of exhaustion. It means to work and to labor to the very limit of somebody's ability, See, this church was a working church. They were a laboring church. They were committed to serve Christ. They were going to serve him to the fullest. And they put a focus of making the most of the ministry opportunities that they had. They made the sacrifices that were necessary to carry out the Great Commission. They were founded on their willingness to sacrifice and to give up of their own comfort for the cause of Jesus Christ. They were a church that served and sacrificed. Secondly, he commends them by being a church that patiently endured a church that patiently endured. Now, by definition, what this means is to persevere and to be steadfast in serving Christ and in standing against the temptations and the trials of life. This is a fruit of the spirit that they exemplified as a church body, uh, and they had endurance through difficulty. Whether that difficulty was without the church and all of the challenges that they faced from uh, those that were persecuting them and going after them, or whether it was something that came from within. You know, sometimes, church, you have to patiently endure offense and patiently endure issues without, and sometimes you have to patiently endure difficulty even within the church. And so these were challenges to this church body, and they were faithful to study the word, to proclaim Christ, and help everyone that they could. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15, that uh, Paul said, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This was a church that was steadfast in this area. Thirdly, though, we see that the church would not allow those who were evil. Thirdly, they would not allow those 
uh, who were evil. And I, 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 think, uh, I think I messed them up a little bit. That's okay. <laughs> we got number four there as well. We'll get that in a second. But number three, let's talk about that one real quickly here. He says, How, uh, thou canst not bear them which are evil. This refers to sin uh, and it refers to evil. Pretty, pretty simple, right? They would not allow, they would not bear those that were evil. People who were corrupt or who were pollu- uh, polluted, people who lived outside uh, and lived for the world instead of living for God. See, the church here would not tolerate sin and shame, the dirt and pollution. They would not allow evil and destruction within the church body. Now, here's what I don't want you to miss out on. It does not mean, it does not mean that they were not willing to uh, have other people who are not part of their church there. We, okay, understand that. They were open to everyone who would come in. But here's the thing. When sin and when evil intentions would boil up within the church, or maybe people who were members of the church would begin to live in a sinful and reject Christ and, and live in those certain ways, they were willing to confront it biblically and lovingly, not allowing anything corrupt their fellowship. And so Jesus commends them for that. He says, you are not willing to bear to have evil. And then fourthly, we see here that the church rejected false teachers. They rejected false teachers. Notice there it says, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. The church in Ephesus, I believe, took Paul's warning to heart in Acts chapter number 20, verse 28, uh, where he said, take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock for, uh, and I'm just going to paraphrase or move through it quickly. The Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the flock of God, which of course he's purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, he said, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Wolves do not care about what they do. They do not spare anyone. Also, he says, of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Sadly, there were some who came into the church body. There were some that came in who claimed they were apostles. Uh, They claimed they were uh, uh, teachers and they taught false things. And praise the Lord, this was a church that was grounded in the word and they were wise enough to recognize them and not allow them to influence the church of God. They said, no way, we are not going to allow this uh, to happen. In verse number six of Revelation two, I want you to skip down, it's another example. It says, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, here he's talking about the Nicolaitans. And you say, well, who are, the, who are the Nicolaitans at this point? Well, the Nicolaitans are people who are not easily identified. They're actually mentioned when he talks about the church at Pergamum as well. And we'll cover that when we get to it. They're not specifically identified. It's kind of hard. And you can look at certain things and figure out exactly who they were. But one of the things that we do know from verses 14 and 15 is that they led people into sexual immorality. Okay, so immediately you think, okay, to have a group in your church family that are leading people into sexual immorality is probably not a good thing, right? And it says here that Jesus says, you need to hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. As well, there were people who promoted the eating of food that was sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul covered that earlier on, but he talked about the idea of not offending a brother who would be offended by that. Well, these people, they didn't care about it. They, they just did it regardless. And so um, they had these issues. And the church in Pergamum, we're going to see, actually allowed these people in. But unlike them, the church in Ephesus agreed with God in their hate towards that sinful lifestyle. And I want you to notice here that God confirms it in the verse where he says he hated their impurity 
as well. Now, here's what I want you to think for a minute, because immediately people say, well, I can't believe God would hate anybody. God does not hate anybody. And here it's very specific. It talks about the emphasis is on hating the deeds, the actions. And that is a great thing for us as Christians to be reminded of. We are to hate the sin, but love the sinner. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. There is no room in the life of a Christian to be accepting of of sinful lifestyles. There's no room for us to be like, oh yeah, that's totally okay. No, no, no. We need to call out and truthfully and lovingly say, sin is sin. This is wrong. At the same time, express our true love for the person who's involved in that. And that's what we see here. God says, I I hate the deeds. I hate what they are doing here. God loved them and any Nicolaitan could be saved and could turn to Christ. We know that. But... We needed to watch out, and this church needed to watch out for that improper lifestyle. And that's a, a great encouragement to us here. They were willing to, uh, they were not willing to have uh, and reject those false teachers or have the evil within their church. And then, fifthly, we see about this church is that the church suffered for the sake of Christ. Verse number three, they said, You have borne and have patience for my namesake, have labored and have has not fainted. They did not faint, they did not. Um, uh, they did not uh, uh, um, give up. And this is a descriptive verse here. And this is something I think that should touch all of our hearts as Christians today. When we see the example of a church family that did not faint, they labored, they, it, to, to, to have born, that means they, they carried along, they carried their burdens, they endured for the sake of Jesus Christ. Notice it there, for my name's sake, and they did not faint, they did not stumble. Uh, there's a story that's told of Dwight Moody, who was an evangelist from the late 1800s, and God really used him uh, in, a, in a tremendous way. And I've got here a, this is an illustration of one of the crusades that he was on and how God just used his, his life really in an incredible way. But the story is told how he came home after a crusade like this, and he was exhausted. He preached uh, many, many times throughout the course of a week, and he was exhausted. And, and some people in his life begged him. They said, please just don't go to the next crusade. Don't go to the next preaching opportunity that you have. And here's what he said. He said, I grow weary in the work, but not of the work. He said, I grow weary in the work, but not of the work. There's a great difference there. See, as Christians, we know what it's like to grow weary in the work of God, but it is tragic, church. It is tragic when you get weary of the work of Jesus Christ, when you get weary of living for his name's sake. It's understandable to get exhausted. We are humans and there's time for rest and, and time to, to, uh, uh, to repair and get ready to go again, but we should not. And it's tragic if we are weary of the work of Christ. It can be challenging to live for God. I recognize that. It can be exhausting fighting the flesh within and fighting the devil without, but we must not quit church. We must not give in to our adversary's desire for us to give less than our best. Satan is the one who's glorified when we quit in the work of God. When we walk away and we just say, I just don't, I have no joy in Christ anymore. He is the one who gets the victory. And to me, to see a church here that is surrendered, that is bearing up their burdens, that is still moving forward is a, is a picture here of a church that is loyal, that is devoted to Jesus Christ. And it is a picture of just what a church should be. I think you would agree with me on that. I think you say, hey, pastor, man, this sounds great. Let's have an invitation and let's talk about right now. This is what we need to be as a church here at City Baptist. And I would say, yes, all of these things apply to us. All of these are areas that we can grow in, that we can develop in and, and, uh, and really see some good things happening. But as we continue, there's something that takes place here in the next few verses that is interesting because God not only con- uh, commends them, 
He says, hey, these are good things, but God also points out that there is one thing that is lacking in the church. There is one thing that he talks about, and I would say this, it is a devastating and it is a destructive thing that can loom large in the life of a church if it is something that is missing within a body of believers. It is something that can make truly the difference of the effectiveness of the local church. And that's why Jesus mentions it here. And point number two, I want you to see the bad. We had the good, and now point number two, we have the bad. I want you to look at verse number four together. Verse number four. It says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Why does he have something against us? Because thou hast left thy first love. Notice what Jesus said. I have somewhat, I've got something against you. You ever have somebody say to you, I got a problem with you? <laughs> I got a problem with you? Or say, hey, what's your problem? Man, that's not a great way to live life, is it? It's not a, it's not a great situation that you want to find yourself in. But yet we see Jesus saying to this church, I have something against you. Now, it's hard to imagine after everything we've covered to imagine that, this, that there was anything at all wrong with this congregation at Ephesus. They were faithful believers. They were enduring. They labored for the name of Christ, but there was something missing in their stellar record. Even though the church had all the appearances of a church that was moving forward for the Lord, that was doing everything that they should be. There was a glaring error to God. It was an unknown and unvisible disease that was in their heart, something that only God could see. That's why I emphasized at the beginning, God knows, God can see every aspect of it. And here's what it was, is that they had left, they had walked away from their first love. Well, what does that mean? Well, the answer is found there in the description. Notice how he called it their first love, meaning this. They have left the love that first led them to live in such a sacrificial and enduring way. They had left what allowed them to live godly and have a great testimony in that city. They had left the things that maybe they were founded upon and they had walked away. They had left the thing that made them an example of a church to all of those other churches and to us today. They had walked away from that first love. Now, I want to walk real quickly here through a couple of verses in Ephesians. Ephesians tells us in verses 1 through verse 15, again, speaking about this church, it says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints. So notice, they were a church that had a love for the saints. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, he said that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, skip down to verse 19, and to know the love of Christ. See that there which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all fullness of God. And then Ephesians chapter six and verse number 23, where it says, peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just looking at Ephesians and learning about this church, we could say, okay, well, what was their first love? Well, we could say it's their love for Christ, first of all. That, that was something that was mentioned there, love for Christ. It could be their love for others, for other people. It could be their love for one another as brethren and as saints, as it is mentioned there. And though it is not exactly clear to us, it could be a combination of all those, it could be one of those specifically, here's what we do understand is that it was the first love, it was the first thing that they were to do. It was the one thing that first motivated them, and I would put it this way, when they were all becoming Christians and coming to Christ. But now here we are 40 years later, and they're still doing good things, but they're missing that motivating love that at first have. Hey, do you remember your first love? Maybe you can write their name in the chat. Maybe not. Maybe not if it's not your spouse. 
I'll have to admit, my first love was not my wife. Uh, she's the greatest love, uh, but she was not my first love. Because uh, I had someone I was in love with at probably the age of seven, I think. And man, I was in love. And guess what? Being in love <laughs> at seven years old uh, with someone in my neighborhood, it led me to do certain things. It led me to uh, have a certain focus in my life. It, made a, it actually affected my decisions as a young uh, seven-year-old. I don't recommend it. It didn't work out. It kind of ended messy, just so you know. Uh, but uh, it, it was something that motivated me, though. And if, if you've ever been in love, maybe remember your first love, the first crush that you had. You remember how much it motivated you and, and, uh, and how even in your spouse, I remember when Jeanette and I were dating, how like almost every waking moment I was thinking about how I could see her if I was not with her. And I would write her notes and I would, I would show up at her class, uh, you know, in, in college just to walk her to the next one, just to have five minutes with her and all of this kind of stuff. And, and, and you, you think about how much you desire that and how it motivated every aspect of your life at that point. And, and that's what he's trying to get at here is the church left that first love. Somebody put it this way, as it had in Israel, the honeymoon had ended in Ephesus. That joy, that, that uh, vital love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ had, had cooled off. And it had led to some apathy, maybe some indifference. And even though on the outside things looked like they were okay, within there was something that was missing. And Jesus points this out so clearly to us. And I'm so thankful he did because it's still a danger today. It's a universal danger to an individual. It's a universal danger to a church as a whole. I want to ask you today, do you remember what it was like when you first got saved? Do you remember when you first began to really follow Christ? You know, I was saved as a young child, and I'm very thankful for that. And God protected me from a lot of things. But I do remember what it was like to finally get, I mean, I'm, I'm committed to serving Christ. And you remember the passion that came. Those of you who've only been saved maybe a few years, you remember what it was like and how it just completely transformed your world and your life and, and how it became a motivator and it became a focus and for everything that you wanted to do and that you would do. It was amazing how when you were a young Christian, how your passion overcame your fear. But now you've been saved for three or four years and you're scared again. It's amazing how when you're first saved, your passion even overcomes your lack of knowledge which you might say, well, that's not a great thing. No, but you at least had some zeal and some passion to share the truth and to get the word out. And it's a danger for us. because, And, and the reason it's a danger is because it is possible as a Christian to serve, to sacrifice, and even to suffer, as we've seen here, for Christ's name, but not have the true love of Jesus Christ, not have that first love, that true motivator that we should have. They maybe had all the programs and all the ministries and everything that they could possibly do in Ephesus at that time, but they were neglecting that adoration and that worship of Christ. Listen, church, labor is no substitution for love. Labor is no substitution for love. Neither is, and, and get this, neither is doctrinal purity a substitute for passion for the church. It's possible for you to have all of your doctrine completely lined up and, I mean, have everything accurately interpreted and be a dead church. That is possible. A church, a believer, as believers, we must have both, by the way. We need to have correct doctrine, but we need to have that first love, that passion that drives us. See, this church was doing many great things, but I feel that they were just doing it out of routine. I feel like they weren't doing it out of love anymore. In fact, we know that because that's what Jesus pointed out to them. This is a danger to us because one of the most dangerous distractions to the Christian life is when we allow other things to creep into and replace our true love and our passion for Jesus Christ. 
When Jesus does not have the preeminence in our lives, when uh, we do not have a conscious keeping of our hearts like Proverbs teaches us, our affection can very easily drift away to new loves and to new priorities. I have to ask you today, how is your passion for the Lord? If God was there in your home right now and he was to look around and say, man, this is great. I see you're watching church with your family. That's fantastic. I see you've got your Bible open there and you're writing notes and you're, you're paying attention to scripture. I think that's great. If Jesus was there and he noticed your family sitting there, I wonder if he, like the church, uh, he, like to the church in Ephesus, would say, man, it's great you're doing this, but where's your heart in this? Where's your passion for this? Where's your focused attention I can't diagnose what it is for you today. Only the Holy Spirit can do that in your life. But if you're the kind of person who you would honestly say right now, I've lost the passion, I've lost the feeling, and you might, and we may try to blame it and say, well, it's because we haven't been meeting in person, and that's just, you know, once we open it up again, I'm sure it's all going to come back to me. Okay, let's just think about that for a moment, and let's think about that statement for a moment. At what point and where in Scripture is it pointed out that our passion for Christ is directly connected to how often we meet with people in person. It's not there at all. All throughout scripture, in fact, it is about the heart, isn't it? It's about our personal walk with the Lord, our personal desire for him. If you're relying on me, if you're relying on a gathering or a worship song or, or being in a crowd to be the motivator for your passion for Christ, something truly is missing in your heart. Something truly is. And I want to encourage you to search and say, why have I left that? Why, why is that first love gone away? I cannot diagnose it, but Christ can. And I got to ask you, this is a hard question. Does Jesus have something against you this morning? Man, that's a tough, that is a tough thing. That's a tough thing to ask. That's a tough thing to ask of yourself. Now, immediately you might say, well, yeah, I've got this sin and sin. And I, I know that. Okay, well, that you need to get right, of course. But maybe there's something else. Have you left your first love? Have you left that passion that at, at the beginning really drove you to serve the Lord? The church in Ephesus had done just that. And Jesus, with those eyes of fire, if you remember in, in chapter one, was able to see right through it and saw through that outward portrayal of ministry and got right to the point. Now, thankfully, Jesus didn't just say, you know what, great, great stuff. You guys are great, but this is a terrible thing and then walked away. No, he gave them a solution to it. And that's what we want to see here. Thirdly, the good, the bad, and the solution. I know some of you were thinking the ugly, but no, <laughs> I couldn't make that work as an outline today. So let's look at the solution here together. Look at verse number five. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. Notice I've highlighted a couple words there. I've highlighted remember, repent, and then I highlighted first works, and then at the end there is the word repent as well. Okay, let's look at the solution here real quickly. The first one is that we need to remember. Do you see that there? He says, here's the way back. You need to remember. And by the way, I just want to stop right here for a moment. This three-part solution to getting right with God is a universal principle 
that God has given to us to restore our relationship with him. God will never leave you hanging. God will never leave you with a way, uh, with no way of restoration. He will always make a way for restoration. And here it is right here. This is the part, and I don't want you to miss out on this. It's so important. He says, first of all, remember where they fell from. He says, look back to uh, your former love for the Lord. I want you to look back and I want you to remember uh, the warmth and the tenderness of that early relationship with Christ. I want you to remember uh, the fervor that you had, the excitement, the communion you had with God, the, the fellowship that you felt with him. I want you to remember the prayer. I want you to remember the sharing that you had back and forth as you shared your heart with God, the awareness of God's presence that wherever you went, you sensed his work. You sensed him speaking to you, the joy and the rejoicing that filled your heart as you did sense his presence in every aspect of your life. He says, remember the Lord's presence. Remember the love uh, that you once had with him. Remember. And here's why. Remembering brings us back to a reality. (laughs) Remembering brings us and reveals to us that something has changed. If you want to get discouraged today, and if you want to feel old, remember what it was like to be a teenager. (laughs) Remember what it was like uh, to be a teenager. Remember when you think back and you think about all that you could eat, all of the the foods that you could have. I mean, it was no biggie for me to drink a huge big gulp. I would skip the Slurpee cups and go right for the biggest big gulp and fill that with a Slurpee, have some, you know, junk food from 7-Eleven and then go out and play four hours of basketball in the summer sun outdoors. No problem at all whatsoever. And, uh, and, and think back to the, you know, and I'd go and play ball for four hours and not be sore and not have a problem. And you think back and guess what that does? It brings me to the realization that I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm not 15 anymore. It reminds me of how old I truly am, which is getting old <laughs> very quickly. But what does it do? Remembering, remembering reminds us. Remembering brings us and kind of snaps us back to Uh, back to reality. And that's what it can do for you if you remember what it was like in your relationship with Christ before. Think back to that time in your life that I'm sure you can identify it when when you were walking. You say, I was walking with God. God was working in my life. He was speaking to me in such a powerful way. Think back to those days and it can help reveal where we are right now. We must remember, but then he says we need to repent. We need to repent We need to turn away from whatever it is that pulled us away from Christ, and we need to turn back to Christ. What is it that has drawn you away? What is it that has changed uh, the relationship that you're in? What is consuming your thoughts and consuming your energy and keeping you from focusing on Christ and fellowshipping and communing with him? What is it that's keeping your mind from just automatically turning to God in prayer? And uh, 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 what is it that has replaced him in your thoughts and your attention? Why are you not sharing uh, with him and communing with him as you once did? What is it that you are more attached to than you are to Christ at this moment? He's saying here, you need to repent of that. You need to change uh, direction. Repentance is a turning away. Turn away from that attachment and turn back to Christ. Listen, there is no earthly possession. There's no earthly attachment. There's no earthly person. And let me tell you this, there is no earthly pain that should come in the way of your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. But we must seek the Holy Spirit to reveal that to us as well. Sometimes it's difficult. And we say, God, what is it? And we need to spend some time really focused in on, on him and listening to his still small voice to reveal that to us. And when he reveals it to us, we need to repent of it. We need to forsake it. And we need to get right and get back with God. We need to repent. But then there's a third, uh, a third aspect of this, which is to return. Return. 
He says to remember, repent, and then return to the first works. We need to restore that original fellowship that was broken by our sin or just by our neglect or just by us just not paying attention to our relationship. You know, for us as believers, obviously, I think it makes sense that it means we need to return to being faithful in, in, in our prayer, faithful in our Bible reading, faithful in our meditation, our obedient service of God and serving and giving and, and, and making church a priority once again. Maybe that's something you just need to return to today. Now, maybe you need to return to having a heart for the lost. Maybe you've lost your love for the local church and your brothers and sisters in Christ and the separation has caused you to maybe even have an uncharitable viewpoint of others within the church family and you've, you've allowed that to happen in your life. Listen, we need to return to having the right attitudes and the right loves. Whatever it is in your life, we need to search our hearts and then we need to allow God to make it clear to us and then return to it. I thought about using the, the word repeat. That starts with an R as well. But repeat those first works. Get back to where you need to be. If you've been living without your first love for a long time, you might not even recognize that it's missing today. But I want to tell you, it might be. If you can't identify, you might be missing your first love. And can I encourage you? It's extremely important. You say, how important is it? Well, look at verse number five, where we see the warning from Christ. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. Notice what he says here. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of this place except thou repent. I want you to listen very, very carefully to this church family. I don't want you to, to miss this at all. Get this. Either we will go back to where we started, either we will rekindle that first love or God will move on and find another place to work. I want you to sit on that for a minute. Either we repent and remember and get back to those first works, or as the verse tells us, he will remove our candlestick. He will remove our effectiveness out of the place. Remember, the candlesticks are those churches. They represent the church. I also believe that maybe if the pastor is the problem, God will remove that pastor, by the way, not every pastor who moves on or does something is because they're in the wrong necessarily, but I believe sometimes God can reveal that, certainly. If the church's light has gone out, he may move that pastor to a place where he may be effective. And we have to be aware that God takes us very seriously, the leaving of our first love. He may move on. The church in Ephesus, think about it, was in danger of losing their light. And they were people who were serving and active and working and laboring for the name of Christ. And they were in danger of losing that. The term where Jesus says, I will come quickly, is not talking about future judgment here. He's talking about in the moment. Obviously, he says, I'll just remove it. That's judgment in the moment. That's before the future events come. In the moment, I'll remove your effectiveness. Think about the consequences of a local church losing its effectiveness for Jesus Christ. Think about a local church losing its ability to make a difference, a church without the power of God on it. Think about that for a moment. Maybe some of you can think of a church like that right now. We are not to be judges, by the way, but I certainly know that within our city, certainly, there are churches. And if you look at the condition of their church we could recognize, we don't have to necessarily have the eyes of Christ to recognize that they have lost their first love. They were once a church that was making a difference, a church that was passionate about the gospel, a church that passionately shared the gospel and made a difference in their community. But now there's almost no impact. Could it be that they lost their first love? We know that it is not the size of a church that determines its impact. We recognize that. 
But I do know this, even a large church with no Christ is a wasted effort. Any church that does not have Christ as the center, that Christ is not our first love, it is a wasted effort. Jesus finishes in verse seven where he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The idea of overcoming is to continue on, to remain faithful. But that first part is what I want you to see here. If you have an ear, Hopefully you've got an ear. If not, you can look at the closed captions. (laughs) Hear what the Spirit said to the churches. We need to pay attention. Pay attention. And I'm so thankful today for the long-suffering heart of God towards his people. How he gives us opportunities to get right with him. But we must listen to the challenge. We must apply those truths. If we are going to see the joy of our salvation restored. Listen, church, I greatly desire to see God work wonders within us, but we must be willing, we must be willing to face the reality of our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. This church, he says, man, you are doing so many good things. You are making a difference even. You are impactful. You are uh, steadfast. You are serving. You're laboring for my name, but there's something that is missing in your life. Church, I don't want that for us. I don't want that for us. I don't want our church to lose the passion and and the the commitment that we had in those first years. I I don't think that we have. I really don't. I'll tell you this. It's hard to gauge right now. (laughs) Being separated, certainly. But this is why it's great that it's happening right here. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we're in Revelation right now because very soon we're going to be meeting in person again. Very soon we're going to be opening back up as we're allowed to do that. And I think it is coming very soon. And the question is, is how are we going to return? Are we going to just sort of drag our feet as we're coming in and man, pastor, you better pump me up because I'm just totally out of it. (laughs) Or are we going to come with our hearts renewed and a passion within each and every one of us ready to go, ready to get back to what God has called us to do, making an impact in East Vancouver for the Lord Jesus Christ. What's it going to be? Have you lost your first love? Can I encourage you this morning? Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you this morning if you've lost that first love. And if he reveals that to you, maybe he's just going to reveal some sin to you. Can I encourage you to do this? Would you please remember where you came from? Would you repent of it? And then would you return to where we need to be? We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.